This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Um, it's a little unnerving. Um, but uh, anyway, welcome uh, to the Friday Night Lecture at Libri. We're cruising through our fall lineup. Um, next Friday night we have uh, the what I believe is the best titled lecture uh, of our fall term and probably one of the most exciting ones. Uh, Esther, would you, as our own Esther Dalton will be, share, will be doing it. Do you want to share the title and uh, give people a little taste of what's to come? Well, I think the title is the taste, but the title is Fellow Passengers to the Grave, Learning Love of Neighbor with Charles yeah, it's going to be slamming. Um, but I'm going to just, <clears throat> I'm going to jump in. And um, tonight's lecture is called The Apostle Paul, A Friend to the Poor? Question mark. And as a way kind of into this, I'm going to, I've presented you a pretty ridiculous image of Paul. Uh, and I'm going to have a fairly even more ridiculous imaginary situation for us to enter to enter into together. <clears throat> so, uh, so be warned. Be warned. It's ridiculous and imaginative. Mm-hmm. So you're in an elevator and you're going up. You're going up to one of the high floors, and it's just you alone in the elevator. And ding, the elevator stops. The door opens, and who walks in the elevator? None other than Gandhi. Gandhi doesn't look at you, though. He's on his phone. It's 2021, imaginary, ridiculous Gandhi. He's <clears throat> Gandhi, I think, is probably a Twitter user. Um, but you're just like, oh, my gosh, Gandhi just walked in this elevator. This is, this is unbelievable. I've got to get a selfie. Now, before you can get a selfie, though, with Gandhi, ding, the elevator stops again. The door's open. Gandhi is still entranced in his Twitter feed. And who should walk in but Saeed Khattab? which I know is not a household name in America, but he is sort of the foremost sort of philosopher of modern radical Islamic terrorism. He's sort of upstream quite a bit from someone like Osama bin Laden. He gets on as well. He's also entrenched in his phone. Uh, he's probably a TikTok user, so he doesn't notice that Gandhi's in there or you're in there. He just presses his button. Elevator keeps going. You're a little tense at this point, understandably, and it dings, and someone else comes in the elevator, and this time it's Hitler, and Hitler is also on a smartphone, so he doesn't notice the other people that are in the elevator with you. Hitler is probably an Instagram user. Um, Maybe that was not a fair fair jab, but you're like, this is crazy. This is such an unbelievable group of people to have in this fairly ridiculous imaginative scenario. And it couldn't get more diverse. It couldn't get crazier than this. But the elevator dings again, the doors open, and this time it's David Ben-Gurion, who, if you don't know, he was the first prime minister of the modern state of Israel. 
And he is also entrenched on his phone. So he doesn't notice that, no, he's sharing the elevator with Gandhi, Katab, and Hitler. But he's probably, like, emailing his kids or texting his grandkids. He's not, he's not on social media. And you're freaking out in this imaginary, ridiculous situation. Uh, and you just can't wait for to get to your floor and get out of the elevator. Uh, but <clears throat> ding, elevator dings again. This time it's not for another floor. This time it's to say the elevator is stuck. And you are stuck in an elevator with these characters. Uh, Gandhi, Katab, Hitler, and Ben-Gurion. And they all simultaneously look up from their phones. They recognize one another. And you are in a pickle. What can you possibly say to keep this from exploding in violence or descending into chaos? And uh, what could there possibly be that could bring this divergent group of people together? Uh, there's surprisingly at least one thing that I know of, uh, so in case you ever find yourself in this situation, that this most unlikely quartet share in common. And it is a deep distrust, if not outright disdain, for the Apostle Paul. All four of these people, along with many others, have written about how Paul is untrustworthy, how Paul is a bad dude. And I found these four, along with plenty of others, in a really interesting book called Paul as a Problem in History and Culture, uh, the Apostle Paul and his Critics Through the Centuries by a New Testament scholar named Patrick Gray. And he starts with Paul's own writings and walks to the present day about people who have a problem with Paul, and it's surprising the sort of swath of humanity that really dislike the Apostle Paul. And a common thread to a lot of what Gray calls anti-Paulinism uh, is the belief that Paul deformed and ruined the way of Jesus. That Paul invented Christianity, and all the good stuff Jesus brought, Paul got rid of and did away with. Earlier this week, I heard a podcast where a pastor said, I love Jesus. I tolerate Paul. I tolerate Paul. And while it's not always as explicit as that, it's kind of here at Labrie, we, we see people that come through, both people from outside of the Christian faith, but then probably even more so people from within the Christian faith who have a similar affection for Jesus, but they're just sort of cold with Paul. They're not sure what to do with Paul. They see Jesus as accepting, as anti-establishment, Paul is dogmatic, and he organizes the church into a hierarchical structure. Jesus welcomes women into his traveling group of disciples. Paul tells them to be silent. Jesus welcomed women, oh, sorry, <clears throat> Jesus comes to proclaim the year of Jubilee and justice for the least, while Paul waxes doctrinally about the justification of the lost. Jesus is about stories, and Paul is about theological precision. Now, just to be clear, I'm not convinced of any of those antithesis. I don't think they're all right, but they are not uncommon through the history of ideas or people that you might share the pews with. And I tonight want to focus in on one common kind of antithesis between Paul and Jesus is that Jesus cares for the poor and the least, while Paul only cares for the lost. I think this is wrong, just so you know. And I titled this lecture, The Apostle Paul, A Friend of the Poor, I'm trying to link it together with a few other talks on Paul. <clears throat> Paul, a friend to women. Paul, a friend to the enslaved. Where, for better or worse, uh, I look at some of the controversial passages of Paul. 
uh, and I keep returning to Paul because I keep finding him an interesting person, uh, an interesting writer. And uh, I keep finding him being pretty misunderstood both by Christian and non-Christian critics alike. Um, but this idea that Paul doesn't really care about people, especially about the least or the poor, is what I want to go after or consider tonight. And so the way that I want to frame our evening uh, is I want to first talk about Paul's theology of God's gift. Uh, from then I want to look at the nature of poverty in the first century in Paul's day. And I'll spend our, most of my time talking about Paul's collection for the poor in Jerusalem, this multi-year-long project, if not decades-long project, uh, where Paul raised funds for poor Christians in Jerusalem. And then from there I have <coughs> a few concluding thoughts. But Paul's theology. So <coughs> reoccurring and really animating uh, Paul's life and his thinking is this Greek word charis. Uh, the word that is often translated as grace. Uh, we have someone here named Karis. Um, sort of have a little like little Pauline celebrity. And we have someone named Grace. We have two Pauline celebrities here. This is very exciting. Uh, but in the ancient world, <clears throat> this word Karis could mean grace, but it also meant gift. It meant benefit. It meant favor. And so thinking about Paul and his theology and his writing sort of through, uh, or having sort of the nature of gift-giving uh, in the ancient world has just opened up Paul in a, in a really helpful way for me. And I've learned a lot <clears throat> from a New Testament scholar who's already gotten a little um, time from up here in Ben's lecture. This isn't a pulpit, whatever this is called. He's gotten a shout-out from this thing, uh, from Ben, a guy named John Barclay. He's a professor at Durham University in the UK, and he's written a lot on... On Paul and Grace. This is a smaller book of his, Paul and the Power of Grace. This is a really helpful little book. Uh, he has a larger book called Paul and the Gift. But he wants to place Paul's theology and his ministry within this ancient context of gift giving. Grace, gift. How did people think about this? What were the connotations that maybe mean we miss? Um, and he says many things, but uh, <clears throat> a way that I mean, he says many things because his, his other book is like 750 pages. Uh, but a, a great way, I, I think a memorable way into this, and I've actually read this before from up here, is, um, is a contrast between what he sees as the pattern of grace in Paul's teaching and Paul's life and Santa. So he's going to contrast Santa with Paul here a little bit, or at least with grace in Paul's gospel. So I'm going to read a longer section here, but I think I think it's actually pretty instructive. Um, I'm going to take a drink of water. I'm going to put that down. I'm going to move back here, give you all play-by-play. All right. So this is Barclay. Many people in the modern West think of God in something like the way they think of Santa Claus. That is, a genial figure whom you address only when you want something. And then you hope he will be kind if he considers you sufficiently good. I have argued in this book, he's on page 149 at this point, that the pattern of Paul's good news, his gospel, is very different. In fact, it is the inverse of this Santa Claus image. According to the well-known Christmas song, Santa Claus is coming to town. It is Santa's task to keep a list of those who do right and wrong, and he will distribute his gifts accordingly. 
In other words, Santa's gifts are conditioned. He gives to those who have been good. Like most responsible givers, especially in the ancient world, he wishes to give only to worthy recipients, and he finds out who they are. However, once his gifts have been given, there's no resulting relationship, no expression of gratitude, and no expectation of a gift in return. He says in parentheses here, children write requests to Santa, but does anyone ever write him a thank you letter or ask him how he's doing after Christmas? <laughs> in other words, Santa's gifts are congruous but non-circular. Those are some of his technical terms. We'll come back to that in just a second. They are given to worthy recipients, but have no strings attached. They fit the moral ideas of modern Western individualism. Paul's message of grace was the opposite. It was incongruous and circular. We'll hopefully make sense of this in just a moment. The Christ gift was given to the ungodly in the absence of worth. And it was given to all without regard to any pre-constituted worth of gender, ethnicity, status, or success. And here for tonight, we'll add, or wealth. There was no list and no selection determined by who's naughty or nice. But it was given in order to transform the human recipients and to establish a permanent relationship. The gift of the, uh, the recipient, the receipt of this gift is necessarily expressed in gratitude, obedience, and transformed behavior. So he's, he's contrasting gospel with Santa. And he says the way Paul understands the giving of gifts, Paul understands the nature of God's grace, is that there is a mismatch. God doesn't give it just to those who are good or just to those who are deserving. He gives it, it's incongruous. It doesn't matter if you're naughty or nice. If you're willing to receive it with open hands, you'll get it. And it's also circular, meaning that it's relationship making. It's not that God gives you a gift and then walks away. The gift's intended response is a response. God wants a relationship with people. And so while we think of gifts as sort of given um, only to those that are good, and a pure gift is one without requiring a response, in the ancient world, you gave gifts only to those who were worthy, only to those who were nice, not naughty, and those who would pay you back, give you something back. And so um, in Roman culture, in the first century, you only gave gifts to the best people, people who deserved it, people who could repay you materially or maybe honorifically, uh, people also that you would want to be in relationship with. And so what, what Barclay is trying to say is God gives gifts to whoever will receive it, but those gifts are meant to forge relationships. There needs to be a response to the gift. Now, I gave a ridiculous image of Paul before. This is another image that I just want to have up. I found, I'm actually really excited. I've got a few pieces of artwork by an artist named Denise Kalitzi, and this is her portrait of Paul. Uh, So just as as we keep talking about Paul and grace, I just wanted to share this image, and there's a couple more. But this grace of God, this gift, actually, in Paul's thinking, carries something of a momentum to it. As it's given without regard for the worth of the recipient, it's going to create new communities of people who previously had nothing in common with each other. Communities that cut across systems of social capital in the ancient world. 
ethnicity, age, gender, social status, as well as wealth. And the impulse to create new communities that cut across these systems of worth, people that really would have nothing to do uh, with one another, made Paul pretty suspicious in, in the eyes of many, both outside of the church, but also within the church. If we remember that the early Jesus movement, the early Christian movement, started out of Judaism, a major concern that a lot of Jewish Christians have was whether or not this was going to be a reform movement and we had people continue following the law or whether it was going to be something different where people did not have to follow the Jewish law. Now, Paul is definitely in that second camp. But for a lot of early Jewish Christians, they were suspicious of this guy, Paul. What is he doing out there? What sort of gospel, what message is he preaching? And Paul recounts in his letter to the Galatians... Uh, how this situation at least was initially dealt with. He goes to Jerusalem, the sort of birthplace of the Christian faith, and he has his gospel kind of checked out by what he calls the pillars of the church. And uh, they, they want to know what exactly it is he's preaching, what he's on about, especially if it's no longer connected to observance of the Torah, of the Jewish law. Ultimately, he's approved, he's offered the right hand of fellowship And it's interesting, in Galatians he says, and they said under one main condition, as long as he remembered the poor. He doesn't have to preach the law, but he has to remember the poor. Paul says the very thing he was eager to do. Now in the ancient world too, as if you think about how ancient people thought about gifts, about giving to worthy people, people that could pay you back, it wasn't common to give gifts to the poor. Uh, And in fact, care for the poor from what we know, is a distinctly Jewish characteristic uh, before the emergence of Christianity in the ancient world. You were selective in most cultures about who you would give to. So you would never give to a poor person because they couldn't pay you back, because they were of less worth or value than you. But Jews were different. Jews were very different. And you can see this all over the Old Testament, in the law, in the prophets, one thing that I think captures it well is Proverbs 19.17 that says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. It's interesting. You're kind to the poor. You're lending to the Lord. Like the Lord needs what you're going to lend. It's quite, it's quite a distinct thing. So if Paul is so eager um, to remember the poor, why does it get so little mention? Why does he not talk about it so much? And why do people that are sort of chronicled in this book, Paul as a problem in culture and history, why do so many people think he doesn't care about material needs? Uh, Jesus came to proclaim the year of Jubilee, released to the captives. He said, blessed are the poor. But what about Paul? What does Paul say? There are a few places, it's kind of evident, in Galatians 6, he talks about doing good to all, especially those who are in the household of faith. Which the idea of doing good, I think, is more than just like being friendly to, uh, but involves some material or financial help. And then in Ephesians, he says uh, about someone who's been a thief. Let this thief no longer steal, but rather let him work uh, honestly with his own hands so that he can have something to share with anyone in need. There's one other place that he, he kind of talks really explicitly about this that I found in 1 Timothy 6. Uh, He warns, he tells Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, to warn the rich, uh, to not set their hopes on their wealth, 
but on God. And he tells them to be generous uh, and rich in good works. But Paul doesn't, he doesn't talk about it as much. And I think one of the reasons why is maybe, or it could be help, help us understand why, is understanding a bit of poverty in the first century. Now, uh, so we're going to transition into that, that point. And Paul spends, if you know much about Paul, he spends a lot of time in urban centers creating new communities of faith. And in the ancient world, poverty was everywhere. And I have a, a, a poverty pie chart here. This is some Roman economic divisions. And I got this from a theologian historian named Carla Swafford works in her book, The Least of These, Paul and the Marginalized. And she's working with a bunch of different histories. And this is just sort of the makeup of the those who have and those who have not in the first century throughout the Roman Empire. So those who have the most are the imperial elites, uh, those who are uh, elite over the whole empire. And they make up point, if you can see here, I've got, look at this, laser pointer, 0.04%. So like, you know, the, when there was the Occupy Wall Street, you know, protests, and when Bernie talks about the 1% to get everything, and in Rome, it wasn't even the 1%, it was the like 0.04%, down with the 0.04%. <laughs> and they're so small, you can't, I think it's over here, but you can't actually see them show up it's such a small segment of society. You don't even see it show up uh, on this pie chart. Now, the next uh, that I want to point out are just regional... Oh, sorry, there we go. Are regional elites, which make up about 1% of the population. And then finally, the uh, municipal elites over here. And then moderate surplus, so which is 17%. So you got 17%, about 2%. 1% and less than 1%. Uh, these are people that, that basically had enough to get by and wouldn't worry about the next day. And as you move into these larger blue sections, which make up well over 60% uh, of people on the ground in the Roman Empire, you have folks that lived below subsistence level, which is over here 25%, then about 25% who were stable, which meant they're just a little bit above uh, subsistence level, but then most most of them were subsistence level, so people that were just barely getting by. So the majority of people, of citizens and just uh, members of Roman society in, in the first century were poor. Most everywhere you looked were poor people. And people's lives were tenuous. Bad crop, bad weather, an earthquake, a famine, and you could lose everything. Um, Swafford spends a lot of time in her book talking about this. And it doesn't seem from Paul's letters that he attracted uh, a lot of folks from these elite categories, the imperial elites, regional elites, municipal elites, and even maybe some folks with modern surplus. He says in 1 Corinthians about, uh, about, about the church there, about how not many were wise by human standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, so he's saying not many were. You might have heard those three not many's. Uh, but that meant some were. And so Paul names some folks who appear to be upper crust in his communities. There's an Erastus in Romans 16 who's a city treasurer. There's a guy named Gaius also in Romans 16 who had a house big enough for the church to meet in. About 50 to 100 people. 
And there's a lot of other people named. There's a woman named Phoebe who's called a prostasis, and she's a benefactor of Paul. She's a wealthy woman who helps support Paul. Um, but Paul himself was probably fairly poor. This is another image by that same artist. This is Paul in prison. I like this because you can sort of, it looks like a pigeon uh, that she drew it in. Um, uh, anyway, I just think they're beautiful. I just needed to find a reason to put this image in, if you don't know the truth. But Paul presents his own work as tenuous. He's often in prison. And he's, he, uh, other churches support him or send him support in prison. Because if you had no money in the ancient world and you were in prison, you just died. Because you needed support from outside the prison. There's no cafeteria. There's no mess hall. Uh, you're just in there on your own. So I think Paul himself, he presents his work as tenuous also. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be shipwrecked. He knew what it was like uh, to be beaten up by people. Paul himself was, was someone whose life was difficult. Uh, and we know there are a lot of non-elites in early Christianity. Slaves were known to be part of Christian assemblies. Right after the, the Erastus in Romans 16, the guy who's the city treasurer, there's someone named Quartus, which just means fourth. And so someone who we believe was a slave, it's a slave name. We also know of Onesimus from Paul's letter to Philemon. And we know from extra biblical sources, like a guy named Celsus, uh, who was an ancient critic of Christianity, he said Christians were nothing but leather workers and washerwomen, uh, which was like a, a first century slam uh, <laughs> of some sort. And it's interesting in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is talking about the fellowship meal before uh, that the church shares together, the Eucharist meal, and he's frustrated because there's some that are rich there, that are drinking too much, that are eating too much, And he says uh, they need to be careful because they will humiliate those who have nothing. And I think it's reasonable to think there were Christians who really had nothing. I think there were people in the first century who really had absolutely nothing. And when you have nothing and you face a hard time when you're poor, in the same way it is today, if when you fall on hard times, if you need help, who do you look to? You look to your family if you have a family. And so it's an interesting thing to think about uh, Paul's favored language for speaking about early Christians. He didn't call them the church. I mean, he does call them, but his, the, the term he uses the most is not church, is not body of Christ. But he calls them brothers and sisters. He creates these kinship networks, these networks that outside of the community would be the people you look to for help. So when... When Paul talks about these new new siblings, these brothers and sisters, people who live at or near subsistence, what does it mean for them to carry your burdens when you need help? It probably means they financially help you. Um, and so one of the ways that I think Paul shows how these siblings carry each other's burdens, how they how they care for one another, what these new sort of kinship networks in the first century could do for one another is... Through this, hopefully I get it, yeah, is through this Jerusalem collection. And he speaks about it at three points in his in his letters in Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And I'm, I'm like totally, totally fascinated with this thing that Paul does for years and years and years. And in part, I'm fascinated with it because you can read books and books about Paul and nobody talks about this. 
This is something that the guy did for maybe a couple of decades, and it still doesn't get a lot of attention in books on Paul or in sermons on Paul. Uh, and maybe I'm just listening and reading the wrong things, which is probably probably true. Uh, but it seems that this was a, a, a decades-long passion of Paul to raise funds among Gentile churches to care for the poor of the Jerusalem church. It's a financial arrangement, but it's really rooted in Paul's theology of grace. He talks about it in such an interesting way, uh, about, about his theology of gift. And I think it's a way that we see the momentum, the cascading of God's grace, God's gift, entering into the world. And he says a lot about it, but some of the ways he speaks about it, and we'll go through each one of these, are he speaks about it as a return gift. Remember, you give a gift, and then a gift is returned. This reciprocity. He talks about it as an act of worship. And he talks about something that creates equality. But he calls the whole project multiple times a charis. He calls the whole thing a grace, a gift. And we know at a minimum that he enlisted at least four churches. Churches in Corinth, Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia. And Achaia, I guess, is quite close to Corinth, so maybe that's... Maybe they're similar churches, but we can talk geog- biblical geography later. Um, I know everyone's really excited about that. Because uh, he names those four churches in particular. But scholars also wonder if uh, when he speaks about, when it's narrated in Acts about him delivering this fund to Jerusalem, if the name people who accompany him are representatives of other Gentile churches uh, who have contributed and there, we'll see in a little bit maybe one of, one of the reasons why they, they think that. But then that would add to the four churches in Derby, Lystra, Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, Mycia, and Ephesus. So this is like a big project. Paul has started these communities, and he's trying to com- convince these communities to give money to people they don't know. So this, is, this is quite an interesting thing that Paul does. And there's I talked a little bit about this. In my previous lecture this term on Paul and prayer, there's a silence in the scriptures as to how this grace, this gift, this collection was received. We don't know what they did with it. We don't know if they received the collection. And when you piece together how important this appeared to be to Paul, scripture silence is kind of loud, I think. And again, recalling the first century context of gift giving. To receive a gift is to create a relationship. So if they potentially rejected the gift, and remember there's just some distrust and suspicion between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians that Paul is trying to work against. So if the Jewish Christians reject reject what the Gentile given uh, Christians are offering them, it would be really significant. It could either create a tremendous unity across the Mediterranean or make a huge rift. It might alleviate a material need, but it could forge a bond as well between all of these Christians. And some of the Jewish Christians were just, it seems like they were concerned about it. Uh, but we don't, we don't really know ultimately what happens to this huge project of Paul's. But I want to look at a few places about how he talks about it, about how he conceives this work on behalf of the poor, Uh, And so we'll start by looking at this idea. He calls it a return gift. Uh, And... Wrong way. 
So in Romans 15, remember, when I say return gift, there's this idea of the initiating gift that you give and the return reciprocal gift. Uh, In Romans 15, Paul writes this towards the end. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to go, sorry, I'm going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So when I have completed this and have delivered to them what uh, has been collected, I will set (coughs) set out by way of you to Spain." Uh, so it's interesting, Paul talks here about these other churches that were pleased to contribute. They were pleased to contribute, but Paul then also says they owe it to them. If the Gentiles have come to share in the Jerusalem Christian spiritual blessing, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. Owe it to them. This is a response gift. It seems like an initiated gift. To, it's probably to Christians in <clears throat> Macedonia and Achaia. But Paul is saying there's actually been more going on before you. Uh, Gentile Christians have received a gift from Jewish Christians and are indebted to them. And it's interesting, the word I, I kind of highlighted, share their resources, and then to share, I guess I didn't highlight, I guess I put them in red. Uh, I'm also wearing red. Um, and it's interesting, but the term that's often translated as resources, share their resources, and then to share, uh, is this Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. It means participation, a mutual participation. It means solidarity between people in a shared cause, between fellow members of the Jesus movement. And this gift, then, is a return gift, Because I think in Paul's vision, it will tie these communities together. The gospel has come out of the Jerusalem church to the nations. And now the nations, the Gentiles, can return another gift back. And this can tie together communities of different ethnicities across hundreds of miles in Jesus. And to be sure, when the wealthy give relief to the poor, the poor are grateful. But there is a bond of fellowship that's created that's, that's more substantial to that. Um, uh, one of one of my favorite things that Paul says uh, that sort of I think gets behind this in some ways in in First Corinthians four one he just has this thing that he says, uh, "What do you have that you did not receive?" In Paul's mind, everything is a gift. Everything we have has a source, and that source is a gift-giving, generous God. And so that God has given gifts through Jerusalem, now we can return gifts, and we can create and forge relationship. So this, he speaks about it pretty briefly here. Wrong way again. And then, now, the second way he sort of presents this, or frames this, is as worship. Now, these are the briefest remarks Paul makes about um, uh, about. Uh, the the collection and he does this in first corinthians and it's sort of all business like it's pretty straightforward so he says this now concerning the collection for the saints you should follow the directions i gave to the churches of galatia on the first day of every week each of you is to put aside 
and save whatever extra you earn, so that collections need not be taken when I come. And when I arrive, I will send any whom you approve with letters to take your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Just as a brief aside, when I gave the two potential lists of churches, maybe it's the ones that he names explicitly, maybe it's more of those other churches, it's because of this, because he says, if you want others to go with me to deliver that kind of represent you, that's totally fine. Um, Okay, back to the matter at hand about how this is worship. It's interesting that Paul says in these very brief remarks uh, to do this, to set this aside on the first day of the week which means when they're meeting together to worship. Paul places the work of relief for the poor within the context of the assembly's life of worship. And the word that he chooses for for what they're doing for the collection uh, is a word that also just means a religious collection. So he just says this about it, uh, and he goes on in 1 Corinthians. But when you move to 2 Corinthians, he gives two whole chapters He gives chapters 8 and 9 about this collection. And so I think he wrote this, and they just really didn't do very much. And because they didn't get excited about giving, Paul had to write more. And so we've actually got, I think, some of like the best chapters in Paul's writing because the Corinthians were sort of sluggish uh, to be generous. So it's a gift they gave by withholding another gift. It's... uh, (laughs) All right, that's a bad gift joke, but there's more bad gift jokes coming, uh, most likely. So, but in um, so Second Corinthians eight and nine, it's a big section. Please read it. I, we won't go through all of it uh, tonight, but there's a real density of charis language in this section, uh, all throughout these two chapters. And I want to focus first on the beginning and the end, how he frames the matter as he's speaking to the Corinthians again. Because it gives us insight, I think, in the way that Paul thinks of God's grace, of God's gift, making its way into the world. So this is how he starts the whole section. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. Uh, And it goes on. Beverly uh, Gaventa, who's one of my favorite New Testament scholars, she comments that it's really telling that when presented with such a practical problem, that one would rightly assume you, you sort of move to emphasize human initiative and planning and responsibility. But instead, Paul starts with grace. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God. And he depicts this whole thing that's going on, this collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem, as an economy of grace, as an economy of God's gift, in which even the most generous acts are still construed, still understood, as part of the cascading grace of God into the world. And so it's interesting. He talks about this. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God. And then he starts talking about the Macedonians who gave out of distress in extraordinary, generous manner. 
And it's sort of like he's really laying it on really, really heavy. Uh, it's like if any of you have siblings, perhaps, and your parents are trying to get you to do something, and they emphasize how your siblings did it. Like, oh, your brother cleaned his room, and he like dusted underneath his bed, and he did the window sills. It's kind of twisting the knife a little bit, laying it on kind of heavy. This feels a little bit like that in some way. Look at what your brothers were doing. Look at, I mean, Paul is pulling out every sort of every sort of trick that he has, I think, to get them to be generous. But what I want to focus on, in a real sense, is that it hasn't started with them. It hasn't started with the Macedonians and the exceptional generosity that they have. It begins with the grace of God. It begins with the gift of God. When Paul says, we want you to know in his letters, he uses this phrase numerous times throughout his letters. He's saying, this is the thing I want you to focus on. This is the thing that really matters. The topic at hand is here. The thing he wants the Corinthians to know about, even more so than the Macedonians, is the grace of God. Uh, and these actions in the giving of the Macedonians describe both what they, the Macedonians, did and how they gave, but it's also at the same time describing the grace of God, the gift of God, making its way into the world. And if we move to the, the closing section, kind of it begins with grace and it ends with grace. This is the end of chapter 9. And he says, while they, I, I started this sort of mid-sentence, while they long for you, and that the they there is the Jerusalem Christians, while they will long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, his indescribable grace. Paul anticipates that the contribution of the Corinthians will lead the Jerusalem Christians to thank God. It will also lead them to long for the Corinthian believers, to pray for the Corinthian believers, because of the surpassing grace of God to them. And while it's possible to think of this surpassing grace as sort of a general acknowledgement of God's grace, it seems to me that this surpassing grace is in fact the Corinthians' involvement in the collection to the poor. So it's in a way of thinking, if, as you see this, how Paul frames it, like these are both, both God is acting and both the Macedonians and potentially the Corinthians are acting. So is it God or is it these Gentile churches who are bringing a gift, bringing a grace to the Jerusalem Christians? The answer is yes. This is how, this is how it works. And then from here, there's one other way that Paul construes this, I think, as worship. And this is sort of, uh, this is uh, a little bit before. He says this in 2 Corinthians 9.12. He says, For the rendering of this ministry, he's speaking about the collection, not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. And the word he uses here that is ministry is liturgios. It's a liturgy. It's a term that's used to describe the service that priests do. You see a similar idea in Paul's letter to the Philippians when he describes the gifts they sent to him as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This gift is both a gift to the poor and at the same time an offering to God. Remember Proverbs 19:17, whoever gives to the poor lends to the Lord. 
And it sounds a lot to me like Jesus in, in Matthew 25. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. Which is interesting to hold those two up together to think, maybe Jesus is actually through that making a subtle claim about his divinity. When you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord. Jesus is saying what you do to the least, you do to me. Jesus is in that sort of structure there. Jesus is implying he is one with the Lord. And while this is no doubt part of this giving, this ministry, this liturgy of caring for the poor is part of the Jewish inheritance that Christians enjoy. It was madness. It was wild. And it was just inconceivable to the wider Roman culture. Paul construes this gift given to the poor in Jerusalem as ultimately not bringing honor to the givers. The honor and the thanksgiving actually go to God. So in giving to the poor, it's still a way that they can worship God. Now, the last way that Paul... I'm going to get this by the end, this clicker thing. The last thing that Paul... last way that I want to highlight that Paul talks about this is a sense of equality. It's it's creating a sense of equality. So this is sort of the middle of of the section uh, in, in Corinthians 8 and 9. And he says this, I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written... The one who had much did not have, uh, did not have too much. And the one who had little did not have too little. So the word I have put in red to match my shirt, uh, is fair balance. And the Greek word there is isotes. Isotes. Sam, is that right? Where is isotes. Sam? Isotes. Uh, and I read it, this is out of the NRSV, which is, puts it as fair balance. I think the ESV does too. But the King James, the Contemporary English Bible, and the NIV all translate this word as equality. And so this word needs a little bit of consideration because Paul says this is the aim of what this, this whole collection business is about. And just to get a sense of what this word means, it's used elsewhere in Scripture. Paul uses it to say that Jesus was equal with God in Philippians 2. He was equal. And he used isotase. Iso, did I say that right, Sam? Taste. Taste, isotase. Thank you. Long E. Uh, he said all Christians receive the same gift of the Spirit. They All Christians have the same Spirit, the equal Spirit. And he says they all have faith that gives them the same status as the apostles. Uh, and interestingly, Paul in Colossians 4 tells masters to treat their slaves as equals. And again, he uses this word, isotis. Uh And this equality that he's after, this fair balance, it's not asking to give to a point of complete deprivation. As he says in the beginning, uh, it shouldn't be that their relief creates, here it says pressure, but you could also translate that as hardship. Um, but before this, um, right before this verse, Paul had encouraged them to see see through what they had started. He said, you'd sort of started this collection process. Don't give up. Uh, and he's asking them to give according to their means. So I, I think this is this equality. It doesn't necessarily mean complete deprivation. 
Um, but it's interesting. There's two ways that, as I read, scholars uh, who are making sense of this verse, there's sort of two ways to make sense of this, uh, especially this middle part about your present abundance and their need so that their abundance may be for your need. So there's two ways to make sense of this. One, is this talking about a future event? So right now, you've got money, they need the money. Maybe in the future, you'll need money, and they'll have money. So maybe they'll set you up that way. So maybe it's a future-oriented sort of equality. Or the other way, and I'm a little more inclined to see it this way, is that he's talking about the current moment. That at the present, while the Corinthians have a material abundance... Uh, and Jerusalem is in material need, the Corinthian, uh, the Corinthian Christians have a real need themselves, a spiritual need, a personal need, a relational need, and that the need could be met by forging a bond with the Christians of Jerusalem, who, as we saw at the end in Corinthians 9, will ultimately pray for them and care for them. So I think we can read it either way, this, this equality, whether it's a future or whether it's a present, uh, it's a present thing. But what is clear is it's it's this is achieved. It's realized through reciprocal giving. Barclay calls this uh, a movement of benefits, not only in one direction but also in the other, with the two communities tied together, both by generosity and need. The issue for Paul in this passage is mutual availability to one another especially material availability when it's needed. This equality, this fair balance, is that they would all have enough. And the Christians would also understand themselves as having been drawn into a network of mutual sharing and receiving, especially with those who are in need. And this call for equality, this, this random, as he says, as it is written, the seemingly random thing he quotes from uh, the manna text in Exodus 16. And it's an example of what sort of divinely imposed equality in a desperate time of need might look like. It's a text about everyone having what they need and about everyone having no more than what they need. But it's interesting too, when gathering the manna, some gathered more, they needed more, while others had less because they needed less. Supply is determined by the need in the, in the manna story of Exodus 16. So not everyone is exactly identical there. And right around this, uh, right before this too, Paul grounds this whole thing in the model of Christ. Uh, and he says this, he says, I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act, the word there is grace, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That because he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he, uh, by his poverty you might become rich. Paul is saying this, this giving, this self-giving uh, on behalf of others, this is actually what God is like. Uh, God is rich in generosity, but then empties himself, places himself in a position of vulnerability and need so that others could become rich. Paul sees those living in abundance uh, are compelled by the gift of God, by the reality of who God is to become generous and also to learn how to receive from others, 
even receiving something from impoverished saints, the poor in Jerusalem. So Paul talks about this in different ways. He talks about it as a return gift. He talks about it as an act of worship and something that creates a quality, everyone having enough in the community. So I just have a few concluding thoughts. Um, oops, just kidding. How do I go back? All right, talk amongst yourselves. Here we go. Nope. Oh, is it this one? I hope this isn't starting at the beginning. Oh, no, it's right there. Great. So my concluding thoughts, uh, Paul's theology of gift, his theology of grace, it cascades into the world, creates a network of people who would otherwise have nothing to do with one another, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. They've been invited to participate, to join in with the grace, the gift, the self-giving gift that characterizes the life of God, especially as it relates to the needs of the poor. Uh, while I think Paul doesn't fit neatly, tidily, or uncomfortably within many contemporary schools of thought about politics and economics, um, he could have some questions for us about how we think about things. And I want to consider what he might have to say about how we think about ownership and how we think about charity in light of his theology of the gift and the practice that we see in his own work. If all we have has been given, gifted to us, what do we have that we have not received? Uh, And if what has been given to us has been given so that we would share it, how does this alter the frame we put around conceptions of private property? Does it at all change our Western individualistic assumptions that we have the right to do what we want with what we have? Now, hear me loudly and unambiguously. Paul is not a communist. I am not a communist. And from what I understand of the history of the modern era, uh, the assertion of rights to private property in defense of an overpowering and predatory landowner or state is a good thing. I think I'm not anti-private property here. Uh, but when the right to do what we want with what we have has been cut off from wider social responsibilities cut off from networks of care as well as a conception of God as the source of all gifts. I wonder if Paul would think our approach is insufficient and even spiritually dangerous. Paul might say as he does to the Corinthians that while we may have a present abundance, we also have a need if we're not willing to share the abundance we have. Barclay writes, Paul's theology of divine gifts, which we hold in trust for others, has the capacity to generate alternative notions of ownership, foregrounding out, foregrounding out accountability to the giver and thus to others, including future generations. And I think some of these perhaps alternative notions of ownership are in, are, are behind what Christians mean when they say things like stewardship. God owns everything and has given us things. We're stewards of them, and we want to use them well. Um, But as long as we're willing to pass them on to those that are in need. The other other issue I I think Paul might have questions with as we think about the poor uh, in our world, in our cities, in our lives, 
is how we think about charity. Paul does not value one-way gifts. Gifts and giving, even to the poor, are meant to create bonds of relationship that entail return gifts, even if those gifts aren't always matching. Communities of reciprocal giving and receiving. Yeah, I think a lot of Western notions, a lot of Western models of aid are built around conceptions of charity, philanthropy, or service. Um, and in some ways, we, we talked about this briefly at our table today, but this can also be true for some models of reparations as well, uh, that they are a one-way giving. They're not built in so that there could be a reciprocating, a response gift. They're not made to create relationships between people. And this one-way giving, often inadvertently, and even though with the best of intentions, can be patronizing, can be disempowering, and even demeaning. It can create both resentment and dependency upon those who receive the gift. In an essay on Paul and the poor, Barclay draws out some connections between the sort of Christian theology of the gift that we see with Paul with a movement that's called Asset-Based Community Developed. Development A, B, C, D. And a few key differences between this sort of model and others that are pretty more one-way traditional models of charity are the following. The first is that there is an expectation that every community, no matter how impoverished, actually has resources, skills, and capabilities which need to be discovered and developed. This is to build local capacity, leadership, and a proper independence. The second thing is we only bring in, one would only bring in outside resources in a way to develop and enhance the gifts already present, not to supplant them or to diminish them. And the third aspect of the ABCD model is looking to create partnerships, cooperation, and solidarity between communities and agencies. So uh, he, he goes on to say this, uh, Barclay. The model of ABCD is not the soup kitchen where lines of needy people are given aid by self-sufficient donors, but the potluck supper where everybody brings something to the table of whatever sort, however big or small. This <clears throat> reality makes me think of uh, Paul's image of the church as the body. When Paul speaks about the body, there's different members of the body. There's hands, there's feet, there's ears, there's noses, there's eyes. Some of the eyes are closing because it's getting late and we're all tired. But Paul, Paul, <clears throat> Paul says, um, one part of the body can't say to another part of the body, I don't need you. I actually don't need you. And there's something about models of charity, one-way giving, that aren't entailed to build relationships, aren't requiring anything back, that while they're giving something, are also communicating, I don't need you. I'm just here to give you something. I think Paul would have a real problem with this. I just want to briefly close with a uh, uh, um, language that I've, I've used a lot, that I learned from a church on the Upper West Side in New York City, a church called All Angels. It's a little Episcopal church um, in New York City that... Um, I actually tried to get them to hire me, and they didn't hire me, um, which pro- probably well, it's probably good for the, it's probably good for everyone uh, in the end. Uh, but they it was an interesting church because the church 
um, the church is in the Upper West Side, and the church was a third kind of yuppie, finance, well-to-do families. It was roughly a third bohemian artist kind of, you know, bunch of like 15 people living in an apartment and <laughs> anyway, kind of. And then the rest were folks who lived on the street. And so the makeup of the church matched the actual wider community in, in quite an amazing way. And they had a lot of programs that they did for folks on the street. It was interesting when Sarah and I and Jacob went to visit, um, they had just gotten back from a church retreat where they all went to upstate New York and all stayed in cabins together. And it was interesting that a third of the people that went on the trip stayed in cabins, came back to the city, and then were back in sort of bouncing from shelter to shelter. It was just interesting. They all lived together. Anyway, it was a very interesting thing. Um, <clears throat> but this church, the church's vision was sort of these circles of dependence. And so they said, ultimately, we are all the biggest. Uh, they, this was the sort of how they modeled or shaped their ministry, which if you were homeless and coming to get fed, you could come for three times. And then after that, you had to sign a contract and agree to contribute in some way, to clean up, to help cook. But you took ownership. You took involvement. You could be a host, all sorts of things. But their model was based on these circles of dependence. And the widest circle is that we're all dependent upon God, everybody. And the middle circle was that we're interdependent within community. There's things we need from one another. And Paul has a lot of things that he says we should do for one another. There's tons of one another's in Paul's imagery. And then the final point was being independent in self-care, moving towards things that we proper exertion of dominion, things we can do in the world. And I, something about that to me captures in different language, in different ways, Paul's, Paul's vision, uh, Paul's understanding of the gift of God and how the gift of God is given to anybody. And this gift creates communities of people who otherwise have nothing in common with each other. And th- this gift of God um, entails a response of the people to God, but also to one another, to care for one another. These patterns, these systems of giving and receiving. So I call this lecture, Paul, a friend of the poor, question mark. I think in some ways the answer is yes. Paul named some poor people in his letters. He named slaves. Uh, he knew some poor people. But I think Paul also was a friend in a larger sense. I think Paul's vision was creating communities where there would, uh, there would be equality, where all would have enough. And there were communities of interdependent reciprocal gifts and relationships. So that's where I'm going to stop um, for tonight. Paul was not just interested in giving to the poor, but giving with the poor and receiving from the poor. Giving and receiving. That's where I'm going to stop. I have more I could say, but I've already said, I've said all sorts of things. Um, But yeah, if you'd like to ask a couple questions, uh, or we can bat around any number of things, I'm happy to uh, talk if you need to go. You're also free to go. You might have driven from Virginia here today, so you might be tired. You might not have... Martin, yeah. Can you be more specific about what uh, all these elevator riders had to say about, about Paul? And for, for all of them, was it just 
that they felt he perverted Jesus' message? I feel like for at least yeah. some of them on the elevator, they would really care about Jesus' message being... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he... Um, um, what's his name? Yeah, Gray goes into some detail about um, each one. Let me see if I can find... Um, some of them, but yeah, I mean, Jesus has, uh, you know, Jesus has uh, um, a respected place as a prophet in Islam, but he wouldn't be considered deity. So there's there is a school of thought that is not necessarily new, but is as sort of in some it's picked up steam at least post enlightenment uh, that Jesus actually didn't think he was divine, uh, but Paul came along and was like, actually, this guy is God. Um, and so in that sense, they see like Paul perverting something about <clears throat> Jesus. And then there are other, I forget exactly what Vangurian says, um, uh, about Jesus, but you know, Gandhi saw like the Sermon on the Mount as the heart, the heart of Jesus and saw this countercultural way. And then in Paul, he just saw like doctrine and just sort of ethereal matters and also thought of Paul as someone who would kind of clamp down and sort of it was his way or the highway type of a thing. So that's partly, partly, uh, was Gandhi's image. And who was the, uh, the third person? Yeah. And then Hitler, he, Hitler has actually, I mean, Hitler saw Jesus as sort of, a um, kind of like quintessential, like Aryan, like white, non-Jewish, and um, uh, he, uh, yeah, he thinks Paul ruins. I, I, I could find the quotes. This is a, fa- it's a really interesting book. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. How do you think Paul, with his twin development and just the life experiences, came to inspire so this book of giving? How how do you how did, how did Paul? I mean, I think uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think about. Um, I mean, I really do think as like cheesy maybe as it sounds. I think it was uh, his encounter with Christ. I think he um, he had lived. I mean, he was like he was he was. Uh, he was crushing it. Like, he was doing great, uh, I think. And, um, I should probably just read this section. Um, um, yeah, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, in, in, in Philippians, uh, yeah, he said, if anyone else thinks he had reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Then he just goes through this, like, circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Uh, whatever gain I had, I counted. But he says, whatever gain I have, I count now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Uh, and he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or just garbage or I think the word is scubala, uh, in order that I may gain Christ. 
So I think part of it is like Paul did everything that was required of him that he thought it would be to live a life that would honor God and um, what sort of the God of Israel wanted him to do. Like he was a violent, he's, you know, he is a zealous Pharisee. He was, so he was not unwilling to use violence, uh, which we see in, in Acts. And I think he met Christ on the road and encountered God, realized like, this is, this is the God I thought I've been serving. Um, and I've gotten the whole thing wrong. Uh, and everything I thought, like, I think it really is kind of a 180. And I mean, as in regards to the, yeah, development, um, I need to think for a moment about how I'd want to want to answer that. But I think Paul really hit, hit a wall at 150 miles an hour uh, and realized uh, I've been doing this wrong. Um, yeah, is that, or is that kind of what you're after? Or what are you... Say a little more. Yeah. Yeah, better. I was wondering whether just considering how opposed he was to Christ, the fact that he had this revelation, this confrontation of God, was just so clearly, and, and, and turned, and became Christ follower, so clearly had to be a gift. It had to be an intervention of God. It's not a yeah. conclusion Paul was going to come to through looking at his Old Testament a little closer. Uh, it's not a conclusion he was going to come to just through self-reflection. <laughs> yeah. It needed to be literally, yeah. like, assaulted mm-hmm. on the road, you know, and that's what it took to turn someone like him around, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, you I think when he, you know, I, he, I forget where it's in one of first or second Timothy, or maybe it's not, and someone else knows, but uh, where he calls himself like the greatest of uh, greatest of sinners, and like I often thought of that as like, oh, that's hyperbole because Paul's like a pretty, like he's a good guy, like you know he's Paul, but I think he, I think he really means that. I think he saw the way he he persecuted and tried to undo. The early Christian, I think he really saw himself as, um, uh, as that. So, um, and to think that, yeah, like Ben was saying, it could come to him that he wasn't disqualified because of that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anyone else have any thoughts on that or want to add to that? Yeah, or are you pointing at Dick or are you? I couldn't tell if your finger was like a. I was just going to make a quick comment. Yeah about what you just, you just mentioned, that 
people say he's a chief of sinners. The fact that, I mean, when you think about it, as he's traveling around to the churches he started, he would have met family members of people he killed. Yeah. I, mean, I think you, you know, he, he would have been reminded frequently of how much he was a recipient of God's grace and mercy and how he as, yeah. he, as he saw people who may, some of whom might have forgiven him and some of whom might not have forgiven him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you going to say something to him? Yeah. I was just thinking on that one. Uh, in the backdrop is, of course, the synagogue system that at its best had a pretty amazing function of the community. Mm-hmm. So in the synagogue system, um, there was a lot going on that the whole church structure came from. Mm. Um, so he was not functioning perfectly, obviously, but, but uh, it wasn't as if Paul would have started from scratch mm. uh, going, going forward with that. Yeah. Uh, then I, just on Martin's question, I think of uh, people liking Jesus and not liking Paul, I think historically it's been much easier to have a superficial reading of the Gospels and then read everything you want into Jesus. Mm, yeah, yeah. And Jesus, you paint a picture of Jesus who incarnates all the ideals of your particular philosophy of life. Yeah. You can't do that with Paul. Yeah, yeah. It's trickier. Yeah, well, he yeah. Nails it down. It's pretty cagey. And, yeah, yeah. And yeah. The, the question is Paul being honest to Jesus? Did he invent, did Paul invent yeah, the yeah, yeah. religion and, and impose all this stuff, which I think is not true? Uh, but but Paul really develops what, what's there in Jesus' teaching, nails it down in a way that doesn't allow wiggle room. That everybody, yeah. Albert Schweitzer's dismissal of the yeah. historical Jesus, yeah, yeah. Survey was, was saying everybody just reads what they want. The Romantics find Jesus the Romantic. The Rationalists use it, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, you can do that superficially cruising around the Gospels. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think as Schweitzer has the image of like, it's like looking down a well. Mm-hmm. The historical Jesus, you just look down a well and you see your reflection in the water, and that's the Jesus you found. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Aaron, were you gonna say something or? No, no, we're not. Yeah, yeah. The question was, how did Paul come to that philosophy? Was that the question of the reciprocity? Yeah, I'm. There are three places I'm trying to forget. I once someone once pointed out to me that through the New Testament you can almost see Paul's self-image getting worse as he writes. Because in First Corinthians 15 he says, "I was the least of all the saints." Mm-hmm. And that's the church. And then later he wrote First Timothy and said that I was the chief of sinners. And I, I think it's somewhere in Ephesians he also made a comment about him. So like three separate times he mentions this. Each time his description seems to be progressively worse. Mm-hmm. So it seems like as he reflected throughout his life, like Marty was saying, meeting people, he progressively realized the depths of his own wildness. But then in First Timothy, he also talks about how um, thankful he was at that same first chapter. I thank God. So I think those things combined is progressing self awareness. Um, coupled with the awe that God still used him and wanted worship and relationship from him. I think that may be quite a tie into this whole idea of 
Untimely says, born. But the, but the grace, yeah, yeah. But but God's grace, you know, to him is not in vain. Like by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me is not in vain. And I think that expresses that. And now I'm in. Here's the here's the reciprocity. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean I think some of the some of the I didn't talk about it. I sort of skipped over it, but the, like, I'm really interested in how Paul, like, what Paul means when he says we're all brothers and sisters, which I think is entailed in that mm-hmm. reciprocal thing. And I, I just, I love this, <clears throat> like, in um, in Acts where, you know, he encounters Christ and he can't see, and it's like, every, every he's just like, everything is wrong, and then there's this guy, um, Ananias, and... You know, he's told, oh, you got, like, welcome Saul. I forget exactly how it goes, but it's, I'm sure he was like, oh, seriously, like, Saul? Like, but the first thing he says to him is, like, brother Saul. Like, he, like, I just wondered if that is, like, a historic, like, cause what does that do? Like, you've, every, you've screwed everything up, and you've been wrong about everything, and you can't see anymore. Um, and, you know, cause I don't think, what happened on the road to Damascus is like a proper conversion. I think from, you know, earlier that morning to when he, whenever he died, he worshipped the God of Israel. He just realized he was doing it differently, and there was a lot more to the God of Israel than than uh, than what he thought. But um, I think it's in Acts nine. Anyway, I just I think something about Paul's experience too being, you know, persecuting this early community and then being brought in. Uh, and cared for. Yeah, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord, you know, which is how so many prophets responded. Uh, and the Lord said to him, Rise and go to a street called Straight and the house of Judas. Look for a man from Tarshish named Saul, for behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And then um, Ananias says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. <laughs> how how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Um, and the Lord said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, laying hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then something like scales fell from his eyes, he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. Anyway, I, I think, you know, and then Paul in... In Galatians, I mean, sort of how this all worked out is a little, I mean, we're, we don't totally know, where is Galatians? I mean, we know where Galatians is, sorry, but it's like, he, you know, in Galatians, he's like, coming in hard. He is like, I, I, like, he starts it by, 
an apostle not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Um, and then he really emphasizes, like, I was called by God. This is like, like, I was, uh, I'm not, um, I, like, I have a unique thing, and not like in a braggadocious way, but I think he's trying to defend, uh, the gospel. Because I think what's going on in Galatians is, uh, or part of what's going on is Paul has showed up, he started a church, he's left, and then other people have come in and been like, oh, you only got half the story from Paul, the rest of the story is you need to follow the law, uh, you need to get circumcised, and that's why Paul is like, don't listen to these people. But he liked to, I mean, he says, he sort of, in telling his story, uh, he was advancing in Judaism beyond many my age, I was ex- I was extremely zealous for the traditions, uh, and then it said, but when he who had set me apart before I was, from before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, he said, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Anyway, he's like, I was, he's, we don't know exactly what, <laughs> what he was doing in all of this, all of this time, and he doesn't, he doesn't sort of fill in all the gaps on, I think, the progression of his, his thought. Yeah, David? Yeah, um, I, my addition to uh, what you have said so far is that when Jesus was alive and brought the gospel, Jesus concentrated mainly on teaching the Jews. Mm-hmm. But later, he started teaching the Gentiles, but his concentration was mainly on yeah. the Jews. Yeah. But when Paul came, Paul concentrated mainly on the Gentiles. And if you notice, the culture of the Gentiles is just so different from the culture of the Jews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Paul too has to devise, has to understand the culture of the Gentiles and devise a technique yeah. to bring them to Christ and also all uh, uh, bring them together with the Jews. Yeah, yeah. So, and if you notice that now we have the Gentiles dominate Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is why it appears that Paul like brought Christianity. Paul is only doing the bidding of Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. Like Jesus prophesied when he was lifted up that the gospel should be preached to the for the most part of the world, yeah. the end of the world. So Paul was one of the engineers yeah. that Jesus used to spread the gospel to the Gentiles and everywhere. Yeah. That is why, because the Gentiles are more familiar with Paul than Jesus. That is why it appears that uh, Paul, like, deviated from the doctrine of Jesus. He never yeah, yeah. I think he only uh, he only followed the doctrine of Jesus in a way that the Gentiles will be able to understand what he's teaching and come to Christ. Uh-huh. And he succeeded because we are able to come to Christ uh-huh. because of 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That made me think of the way I, the Paul, um, it made me think of how uh, Paul speaks in um, the beginning of Romans. He says, I am under obligation. He means literally like, I have a debt. Uh, it's similar to the language he uses at the end about about Gentile churches having a debt to Jerusalem, to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Um, yeah, like that he, yeah. He's doing a job that he was given. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is it, uh, anybody else has this book? Yeah, uh-huh. I saw your hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the verses that you cited seem to um, emphasize the giving among those that are already believers. Yeah. Um, and my own experience with that has been in an East Boston food pantry uh-huh. uh, that was started. March after COVID started, um, as a result of um, members of the church in East Boston basically lost the job. Mm-hmm. And they had no money for land, yeah. they had no money for food. Um, and then it expanded to include the entire neighborhood um, to the point where it was 330 families uh, fed each week, uh, or yeah. not a bag of food each week. It wasn't sufficient. So um, now that COVID is subsiding, the, um, some of the churches that supported us have pulled out. And they're like, okay, we want to focus just on believers. So where is that intersection? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. That's a struggle for us. Yeah. This pantry is still very much supporting yeah. believers, Christians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people are looking in the pantry. They're becoming friends. Um,
Paul is like firing off letters that are, seem to be putting out fires. Nearly all of them seem to be occasioned by a problem. Uh, and so then he's writing occasional things. So like even, and you know, I could be wrong, but, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 16 has the, you know, instructions about setting aside and if you want somebody, but then in regards to the collection, then in 2 Corinthians you have two whole chapters on it and it seems because because the Corinthians didn't follow through, he has to write more. We wouldn't have had any of that writing. So I think some of the like holes potentially or some of the like, just because Paul doesn't explicitly say it doesn't mean Paul wouldn't support it or it would, it would be like foreign to him. So uh, I say that, but then I also think, uh, yeah, I think there's plenty in the Bible about loving our <laughs> loving our neighbor uh, and 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 loving those outside of the outside of the church and seeking seeking their flourishing. Yeah, the en- our enemies. That's a great. Yeah, that's a big one. So I I think there's. There's that there, and I mean, I don't know about how churches make all sort of like budgetary decisions and and, and what they what they do with money. But I do, I mean, our the church we go to has a mobile food pantry that has started during COVID and has doubled uh, during COVID, more or less. And it's because of COVID, it's like dropping food off on the porch um, and then calling the you know. Um, and none of the people who receive it come to the church. And actually, a lot of them uh, are people here that, people in the country that are, a lot of them are migrant families. Um, so uh, I don't know necessarily all of them or anything. But uh, I, I think I'm rambling. I think I'm just, uh, and not necessarily, but I, so I don't know. I think I think churches definitely need to care for those in the church, especially in times of crisis. Um, but I, I think also if the church isn't looking outside, um, they're, they're missing a significant component. <laughs> of, uh, yeah, does anyone have, and Marty, you want to? Uh, well, I was just going to say that, that um, I audited a really fascinating class by, class, uh, by classics professor at Wellesley College who, who talked about the third century um, in, in Rome being in the century that the church just exploded. And a lot of the reasons were, even though they were being persecuted, was because it was a time of terrible suffering, plagues, economic collapse, and Christians cared for their non-Christian neighbors, fed their non-Christian neighbors. They, they didn't leave the city. And actually, it's so striking because um, the Emperor Julian, who was uh, really anti-Christian, was wrote to the head, of, and he was, he was pagan. He was... He was like a nephew of, of Constantine. Mm-hmm. He was raised by a Christian aunt, but he did, didn't believe it all. He was he was a polytheist and pagan. And um, but he wrote this fascinating letter to the head priest in the in the pagan cult, um, complaining that the saying these these impious Galileans, these impious, which was what he, what he called Christians, these atheists, because Christians were atheists, they didn't mm-hmm. they didn't uh, worship the gods. Uh, he said they are feeding not only their own poor but mm-hmm. our poor, mm-hmm. and um, and so he was he was outraged. We're not doing anything for our poor, but the Christians are doing something for for our pagan poor, and uh, and so he said, so get with it and start let's start doing something <laughs> something for the, for our poor. 
Um, it's a really interesting letter. Yeah, there's a, a historian named uh, Larry Hurtado who has a really fascinating book called Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctives in the Roman World. And... Um, yeah, I mean, what he talks about, he talks about similar things where actually care, like creating these networks, these Christian communities that cared for one another, that carried each other's burdens, um, literally, uh, like financial burden. When I hear like carry one another's burdens, I think like, oh, you're having a bad day, like let's get coffee and we can pray. I think that is not an, the only way to make sense of that. I think probably in the first century, it, it entailed a little bit more, but part of like the creation of these communities where they they cared for one another, and especially for people that had no legal recourse for protection, like that was actually quite evangelistic. People were like, "I actually want to be a part of that. I like, I want to be in on that." Um, like, what makes this? What makes you people do like care for one another? And could I, could I join? So that's part of his theory part of his thinking on how and why the early church grew and particularly why it was women and and the poor who were drawn to it people and slaves people who had no sort of legal recourse in in the roman system were you going to say something margaret Yeah, I'm struck with Paul who's not afraid to tell people what to do. In this situation he says, I don't I don't command you. Like, but just consider consider who God is. What is God actually like? Um, and doesn't doesn't force them but tries to compel or persuade uh, to in, kind of invite them invite them into something. Yeah, and if I you know, if I mean I don't want to pretend I'm not uh, I have, I, I, my priorities aren't, my financial priorities aren't right, uh, or perfect or exemplary, but I, I, I do think there's internal pressure in sort of American churches to look a certain way, maybe, and to, to designate funds for some things that get seen, and maybe that puts part of the pressure on as a church, we don't want to contribute to a food pantry, we want to, Maybe do something else, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's 
maybe that doesn't come from as pure motives. I don't know. Um, but yeah, do you want to say anything else or any more or? Well, I would say my own experience in the food pantry is that some of the poorer churches have been far better supporters mm. than the uh, Particularly a Haitian church in Mattapan mm. um, has been consistently sharing food with us. Um, you know, so that's an interesting <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, sorry, this isn't incredibly deep, but the, this piece of art that we're looking yeah. at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is that just that artist? Or is there any. Is there any. Yeah, yeah. There's, um. Actually, in, uh, in this book. Paul's problem in culture and history, or history and culture. He, there are some, there's nothing in, in the Bible, I think, that describes Paul, uh, but there is extra biblical stuff that uh, says he has a big nose and was bald and had problems with vision. Uh, and, I mean, this guy looks, well, I don't know, there's a little Liam Neeson-y kind of <laughs> feel to this. He's about to say, I want my daughter back. Um, but, uh, yeah, Paul, Paul in, in, in 2 Corinthians talks about himself as, um, more or less being better on paper than in person. Like he doesn't have a great, uh, um, doesn't have the strongest presence. So, I, there's nothing, I, I mean, I ultimately don't know. He's often bald and bearded in many of the like ancient mosaics and other kind of images, but I don't necessarily know if they're... up enough to probably not look that great. Oh, yeah. In your last lecture, you talked about how the thorn in his flesh, how that kind of... I know the month, the, the lecture was like a month ago, so I'm not remembering exactly right, but it kind of defined who he was. Do you think that like defined how he treated other people as well? Or? I'm, I'm sure it could have. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, I mean, yeah, like personal personal suffering can go go a couple different ways. It can can create a, a deep like sympathy and empathy. Like I think. There's this um, uh, philosopher named Nicholas Walterstorff whose son died in his 20s, and he wrote this book called "Lament for a Son." And it's it's not a, it's just it's a small book, and it's just short, a couple sentence reflections. But one of the things he says in it is something to the effect of like, uh, "I will." It's, it's, he's pretty poetic, um, but like, I'll look through the world. Uh, through teary eyes, basically from here on, like and like that's the way that I, I will see everything, and it's it's the implication is not just that. I think he sees other people differently and sees their suffering differently. But I mean, I can speak for myself. I went through a difficult season, and I actually actually became more inward focused and just saw my own pain and my own suffering and became embittered. Um, and petty, uh, and not pleasant to be around. Um, so I don't think suffering necessarily makes you, what do you do? It's like, what do we do with our suffering? 
and I, I see Paul as someone who, yeah, cares cares deeply for people, has seems to have real relationships with people, and longs to be with with people, and speaks freely about them being beloved, like his beloved, like my friend, um, and writes with real affection. So I I think. I, I want to say I think it does, but I also get the impression he was a difficult person, too. Like pretty strong opinions, pretty like uh, maybe not like the most fun guy to have around all the time. But like I do think he was. I mean, he's yeah. Anyway, he's um, yeah. Or yeah. What are you gonna say, Marty? Is it an accident? I think it's talking about when he left Ephesus for the last time, and everyone was out on the beach with him, and they're weeping. Yeah. Saying, you know, saying I'm probably never going to see you again. And, and you just have a real sense of that he, these people really matter to him. And, yeah. You know, the Thessalonians, the, I, I stayed up like a nursemaid yeah. when you were ill. And yeah. You really did invest in people. Yeah, and then in Thessalonians, sorry, I, yeah. in Thessalonians, he's like, and then we, you, he says, and we became orphans. Like, yeah. we were like orphans without you. Yeah, anyway, sorry, but keep yeah, going. No, exactly. This is a little different, but just something struck me when you were reading the Acts. Um, uh, the passage on, you know, his the road to Damascus, that just struck me that what Ananias said to the Lord, you know, mm-hmm. you want me to, this guy, you know, I've heard a lot about him, I've heard about all the terrible things he did to the Jerusalem church. Yeah. Now that just hit me, hmm. given your whole lecture, mm-hmm. just how much that might have been in his mind, that mm. he caused such suffering in the Jerusalem church. Yeah. And, and that in some ways is wanting to repay him mm-hmm. wanting to repay, for, repay them for all of the pain and the agony and the, you know, the brothers and sisters who were dead because of him or in, you know, were in prison and stuff. Yeah. And never, that never struck me before hmm. until, you, until you just read it. Yeah. Anyone have anything else there? Oh, yeah, Kate. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think it's exactly clear, um, what the thorn is, but like what it's for is to keep him from being conceited. So, cause he, right before it, he says he has this like crazy experience of God and it's like, um, he says it, um, he says it here somewhere. Yeah, he says he's just caught up in paradise, heard things that cannot be told. That he, um, you know, he sees things he can't. He's not allowed to tell. Um, uh, but then to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, uh, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. Said so, yeah. To, to keep me from being conceited. And it says it's a messenger of Satan to harass me. And then, um, then he says, three times he asked, like, for the Lord to take it away, and three times, well, the answer ultimately is my grace is sufficient, but, so I don't know exactly, I don't, people, I've read different, different things, but I, I ultimately don't know, and I sort of, I like in some ways that I don't, no, because then it's, I, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know, anyway, yeah, for different reasons, but if it would be like, if it was like the thorn in the flesh was that, like, he had, um, 
I don't know, uh, really bad allergy. I'm not. Well, I'm not sure. Just if it's a specific thing, if I don't, if I don't have, it's like if it's a specific thing, if I don't have that, it's like oh, all right, whatever. Like he has this thing that's his problem. There's something about the generalization of it where it's like it can connect possibly to a lot of different different things. So. Yeah, but I don't know. So, yeah. Ben, were you going to say something? Or? Just thinking, um, just the sort of extra biblical evidence that a lot of the early church was made up of poor people, uh, with some notable wealthy people that really like funded a lot of things, you know. And then just like the. the relatively short list of people you mentioned, uh, I think that Paul talks about in Romans, who are sort of more benefactors. Mm-hmm. Um, you wonder whether Paul doesn't talk a lot about giving to the poor directly in his letters because he's writing to poor people. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. Like, how many how many of the people in those churches are actually, like, the subsistence yeah. level Christians, and, like, is this really what they need to be hearing? Um, maybe not. Maybe maybe he wrote specific letters to wealthy people, telling you know who knows. But um, if you imagine a, a, a small body of believers in some city, ninety five percent of whom are, are living hand to mouth, it's like he's not going to tell them to give to the poor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I, that, that's a total conjecture. I just I don't. I mean, I think yeah, I think there's something something to that, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I think if the church represented that cross section of you know the ancient world where so many people were basically just getting by, um, yeah, yeah. Anybody else, Margaret? Yeah. I was just gonna kind of respond to the idea that you she was saying about the churches and the wealthy church and the poor church. And the poor church seems to be supporting more with the system. Uh, it made me think of what you're saying of the concept of reciprocity. I think. Rich people don't know how to be poor, and they don't know how to be hungry. And it's something that poor people do. And that's a strength that they have, an ability. They have an empathy, and I think a desire and a practice of sharing that I think Yeah, I mean, I think also, I'll just, yeah, I think they're, um, yeah, to not to not learn how to be helped or to not receive help can be a norm in some ways in Western culture, at least for some conceptions of uh, being a successful person. Um, but, yeah, and, and I mean, there's a good independence that I think we all need, need a proper independence we need to learn, but there's, I think, an exaggerated version of that in at least the American psyche. And, yeah, if you don't ever learn how to be helped, to receive help, uh, you will get old <laughs> and you will have to receive help. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in my limited experience of folks who have not learned how to receive ever very well, always be providing, always be, not necessarily because they're wealthy, but just because they have a role in the family or whatever. I'm the one who's always helping. I'm the one who, like when they need help, they become like insufferable. Like, because they don't know how to, you know, they're just, they're just like miserable people um, to be around. But and part of that, there's different reasons for that. But like, that's like an underdeveloped 
muscle of, of being human. Like we give, but we also need to receive. And some, you know, there are some who over receive, uh, and who need to then all, and then, yeah, when it's their turn to step up and give or provide or take care of, so then they're just like, you know, like floppy and they don't know what to do and like, um, because there is a proper, I think there really is a proper independence too and, and, and responsibility that, that comes. So, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> like, learning to give is important. Learning to share is important. But also, um, for Western individuals, people, learning to receive, I think, is also really, really important and, like, properly humbling. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyone else? Anything? Denise... Klitsi is her name. She's got cool stuff. K L I T S I E. But anyway. All right, y'all. Thank you so much. Yeah.